Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we are set to engage just not one question, just not two questions, but three questions, right? Uh, It is Special Topic Thursday, so I have set time aside to just not respond to one question, but three questions. And three questions because I think that these questions have slipped through the cracks, if you will. Questions that I thought I answered, but maybe really didn't answer directly. Questions that I thought were kind of answered in responding to another question, but as I've gone back to some of these questions, I realized, you want to know what? I haven't really addressed the question specifically. So this is what we are about uh, this evening, this Thursday. This is program number 48. So we have been at this now for quite some time. Program 48. We have spent 47 weeks up to this point addressing all of your questions. And these just aren't those more classic apologetic questions tied to the existence of God or, you know, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Or even for that matter, those typical questions that come to us, those typical apologetic questions that come to me about Catholicism. Mary, the Pope, Eucharist, certainly those questions have been asked and those questions have been answered, but we've gone there and elsewhere, right? Because you have also been asking me about matters of the heart, uh, matters of the spiritual life. So we have covered a lot of ground, but again, there are questions that have kind of slipped through the cracks, and I think to some degree, the three questions I'm going to respond to today might fall into the category of more classic apologetic questions tied to the Catholic faith, and I want to make sure that I am answering those questions that are on your heart. Now, the first question that I kind of sort of answered when I was talking about Mary was the question about Jesus having brothers. So this is the question. The Bible clearly says that Jesus had brothers and sisters, but the Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a perpetual virgin. How can you reconcile those seemingly different positions? Great question. Uh, So here, we are probably thinking about that passage from Mark chapter 6, verse 3. That passage that reads, Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So, yeah, yeah, I I get it. (laughs) What's going on? Well, first of all, we need to realize a few things here about these brothers and sisters, and I'm putting my hands up in, in quotes. My friends, there was no word for cousin or for nephew or for niece or for aunt or uncle in the ancient Hebrew or Aramaic language. The words that the Jews used in all of those instances were what but brother or sister. And part of that was this deep sense of any kind of blood relation being a brother or sister in God. Uh, Right now I'm doing a study on the book of Genesis, as many of you know, 
And what did we find in Genesis chapter 14, verse 14? But Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, being called what? His nephew? No, his brother. His brother. The Greek word there, by the way, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, is adelphos. Adelphos, which probably best translates as cousin. Okay? And oh, by the way, my friends, as it relates to James and Joseph's we see from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 55 to 56, that the James and Joses mentioned in Mark chapter 6 as the quote-unquote brothers of Jesus are what? But actually the sons of another Mary, right? So there you kind of see that playing out. Now, another point to consider is that if Jesus had any brothers, if Mary had any other sons, would the last thing Jesus did on earth be to grievously offend his surviving brothers, right? I mean, think about it. In John chapter 19, verse, uh, verses 26 to 27, right before Jesus dies, we read that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to who but the beloved disciple John. If Mary had any other sons especially in Jewish culture, it would have been an incredible offense to them that the Apostle John was entrusted with the care of their mother. So what you have here is just a number of things not adding up. Uh, speaking of adding up, actually, there is another passage to consider in response to this question. Go to Acts chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. What do you read there? The apostles with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. 120. So a company of 120 persons composed of the apostles, Mary, the women, and the brothers of Jesus. All right. There were 11 apostles at that time, right? Jesus' mother makes 12. The women were probably the same three women mentioned in Matthew chapter 27, but for argument's sake, let's say there were up to a dozen women, okay? That would bring the number to approximately 25. So that leaves the number of Jesus' brothers at about 95. I mean, do you honestly think that Mary had 95 children? Of course not. That's one of my former professors once coined, we would not be talking about Mary as the perpetual virgin, but the woman who was in perpetual labor, right? I know many of you know that I'm one of 11 kids. My mom was in perpetual labor because not only did she have 11 kids, but there were also miscarriages there, right? There's 16 and a half years between uh, the oldest and youngest in my family. My mom was basically pregnant for 12 and a half of those 16 and a half years, right? And she only had 11. And my mom's hearing this right now and saying to me, only? <laughs> I'm making a point, mom. I'm sorry. All right. Jesus having brothers, Jesus having sisters. What we have to understand here, my friends, is in the end, this is a matter of getting into the original text. And how many times have I talked about this in relationship to just getting into what a verse is actually saying based upon the Hebrew, the, the Greek, okay, the Aramaic. Now, in speaking to a proper interpretation of the Bible, 
I want to go to the second question. And I thought this to be interesting. Why doesn't the Catholic Church take the Bible literally? Why doesn't the Catholic Church take the Bible literally? Now, I find this interesting because, well, <laughs> it depends on how you use that word literally, right? I think there needs to be a clarification really into that question. Catholics interpret the Bible in a literal sense. And I focus on the word literal sense because I know for some fundamentalists, uh, evangelicals, and others, they interpret the Bible in a literalist sense. So it is more for me about making the distinction between the literal sense and the literalist sense. What do I mean by that? The literal meaning of a passage of Scripture is the meaning that the author of that passage of Scripture intended to convey. The literalist interpretation of a passage of Scripture is, well, that's what it says, and, and that's what it means. Where's the distinction? Well, let's draw this out by way of illustration. If you were to read a passage in a book that said, say, it was raining cats and dogs outside, how would you interpret that? As Americans who live in the 21st century, you would know that the author was intending to convey the idea that it was what but pouring rain. It was raining so hard that you might not even be able to see 10 yards in front of you. That would be the literal interpretation, the interpretation that the author intended to convey, right? On the other hand, what if you made a literalist interpretation of the phrase, it's raining cats and dogs? Well, <laughs> the literalist interpretation would be that if you were to walk outside, you would be actually seeing cats and dogs falling from the sky like rain. Obviously, not taking into account the popular accepted meaning of the phrase, not taking into account the author's intention. The words say it was raining cats and dogs, so well, it's raining cats and dogs. That is the literalist interpretation. All right. So if if someone 2,000 years in the future picked up that same book and read it was raining cats and dogs outside, in order to properly understand that passage in the book, they would need a literal interpretation, not a literalist interpretation. Put this into the context of interpreting the Bible 2,000, 3,000 years after it was written. Some of this, I think, is just applying common sense, right? You know, in our treatment of how to interpret sacred scripture, you've heard me on more than one occasion break open what we intend to mean when we say the literal sense and the spiritual sense. Often we just open up the Bible and, you know, we open up the Bible so as to be moved by sacred scripture. And that is a part of the spiritual sense. I'm not going to get into all of that right now. But as I speak to the spiritual sense, and as I've spoken to it in the past, what we are always mindful of is that what is foundational is the literal sense. Because, again, it speaks to the intention of the author, what the author was trying to convey. And you can begin to understand what the author is trying to convey by rolling up your sleeves, working in the tall grass a little right, and coming to appreciate who, if it was Matthew, who Matthew was writing to, if it was John, who John was writing to, if it was Mark, who Mark was writing to. In the case of Matthew, he was writing to a Palestinian Christian Jewish audience who was steeped in the Old Testament, so his gospel was going to cater to that truth, 
to some degree. So if you want to appreciate the Gospel of Matthew, you have to go even deeper into the Old Testament. And you have to get into the mind of that first century Palestinian Christian Jew, right? You have to get into the cultural milieu of that time. You have to appreciate the circumstances of that time, the language of that time. That's foundational. I've given the analogy before of me corresponding with my sister who is a religious sister. I have a sister who is a Carmelite cloistered nun, so I have a sister who's a sister, right? <laughs> a biological sister who's a religious sister. We write letters to each other, and I am often moved by what she has to say. I really am, and I think you would be too. There are just many things that she has to say that are very insightful into the spiritual life. And I appreciate everything she has to say, especially when it applies to the spiritual life. But if I were to take all of her letters and put them into a treasure chest and bury that treasure chest five feet into the ground and say 700 years from now, someone was excavating in my backyard and they found this treasure chest and they opened it up, and they read these letters, would they be moved? Absolutely, because I believe these letters were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But could they fully understand the dynamism, the depth of what she was talking about? I would argue no. Why? Because often these letters are talking about the circumstances that surround us today in, in 2018, and she joined in, what, 1998? So really for the last 20 years as she's been in the convent for 20 years. And in this 20-year span, in all the letters that she has written to me, many of those have dealt with the culture of death, politics, and the sort. So if I read these letters 700 years from now, if I'm going to fully understand, again, the dynamism and, and, and the depth of these letters, then what do I need to do? I need to pull out a history book, and see what was going on between 1998 and 2018. Only then, my friends, can we really have a sound, literal interpretation of what my sister is trying to say. So there is the literal interpretation, and then there is the literalist interpretation. So when you ask me, why doesn't the Catholic Church take the Bible literally? Well, we do in its proper context, not in the literalist sense, but in the literal sense. That is to say, as we study what the author was trying to convey. All right, now how about this last question, this third question? And, and, and I like this question a lot, a question that I have responded to here or there, but again, I, I want to make sure that, that this question is handled more holistically. What does the word church mean in sacred scripture? I'll say that again. What does the word church mean in sacred scripture? So let us go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18. There Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So first, let me say this, because it gets to the heart of what the word church means. This is not my church or any body of believers church, in the sense that the church comes from anyone outside of God himself. It is Jesus's church, and he built it. 
and not even the gates of hell can stop it. All right, in this passage, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia, it is a word that is sometimes translated generically as uh, assembly of believers, but it is more a word that is used when a gathering of citizens are called out from, the, the ek of ekklesia, called out from their homes into a public place for a gathering, for an assembly, for worship. So it's an assembly of God's children who had been called out and consequently adopted into the family of God. If you were to go into Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, verse 11, this is what we read. We might think we are the ones who sought after God. But brothers and sisters, the children of God were not born of their own will or of their will of any man. But as John chapter 1, verse 13 reminds us, but of the will of God. So the church is a group or assembly of believers who have been purchased by God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, called out from a former way of living and baptized into the family of God. So the church is not a man-made gathering of people who decided for themselves to build a church to meet together and sing worship songs to God. That is not the biblical vision to church. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the church. Brothers and sisters, again, the church is just not some building. The church is not a a social club. The church, as being joined to Christ, is a mystical body of Christ that has been called out from the world so as to be in Christ. Oh, civilizations have come and gone, huh? (laughs) But there is only one civilization rooted in the person of Christ, and that is the civilization that gathers in the name of Jesus Christ, the church, the mystical body of Christ. Have you not heard me clamor, (laughs) as I've said it before, that if we reduce the church to a definition that is so generic, that is so bland, that is so vanilla to just a congregation that comes together or or just an assembly of believers, then we are missing the boat. Because the word church, ecclesia, deals with this drawing out from, being called out from, so as to be joined into another and that another is Christ himself. And consequently, we are just not the body of Christ, but the mystical body of Christ. We weren't just baptized into the faculties of Jesus, but the mystical body of Christ. Central to our faith, this is. Absolutely central. Because what this does for us is put before us that quintessential vocation to be a mystic, 
to go deeper and deeper into who Jesus is in his humanity and in his divinity. And anytime you talk about that which belongs to the divine, yeah, certainly you're talking about the mystical. Jesus Christ gave to us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The whole Paschal mystery, there again is the word mystery, the whole Paschal mystery is at the service of what? As John Paul II would remind us, St. John Paul the Great, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And once we come to understand this, that the whole Paschal mystery is fully realized at Pentecost as he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit and in our baptism, then we can begin to understand that, yes, our life in the Spirit is but a life of, dare I say, Paschal mystery. That from one encounter to another, we see that encounter as a, a passing through, an encounter that belongs to the divine. That everything we do is pregnant with mystical significance, eternal significance. That every encounter we have is charged with mystical significance, eternal significance. This is the stuff that we are to be meditating upon and contemplating with as it relates to the church. Now, what else could we say to this? Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI once said that, yes, the church exists for evangelization, but he said something else there too. <laughs> and more recently, this is another thing that I've been trying to develop. The church exists for worship. The church exists to serve the poor. And yeah, the church exists to evangelize. We read in John chapter 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So we abide in the Father's love in our worship. And out from that abiding, out from that existing in God, we exist for other. And we are at our best when we are in the mode of just not serving the poor, but also evangelizing the poor. And I, and I say evangelizing the poor in the context of evangelizing those who are without Christ. So we go to serve the material poor, and we evangelize the spiritually poor. This is our baptismal vocation, in God for other. Once we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, then we can better understand the task, right? Once we've internalized everything that the Paschal mystery is about, then we can externalize, then we can go forth and, and profess, preach, teach, catechize, and evangelize what Jesus Christ is all about. What did Jesus say? Write this? No. Preach this. Teach this. In relationship to the Eucharist, do this, right? The church exists for worship. The church exists to serve the poor. The church exists to evangelize. And as she does, let us remember that everything we do, we do but for the glory of God, right? We do but for the glory of God. When we are at our best as Christians and Catholics, we become the praise and glory of God. And we become the praise and glory of God insofar as the Holy Spirit has invaded our souls through and through. Amen? Amen. All right. 
So we've, we've, <laughs> we've hit a lot of subject matter this evening, right? I've responded to the question. The Bible clearly says that Jesus had brothers and sisters, but the Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a perpetual virgin. How can you reconcile those seemingly different positions? Again, once we are rooted in the original text, that I think is made pretty clear. We responded to the question, why doesn't the Catholic Church take the Bible literally? Once again, once we understand what the Catholic Church actually believes, I think that is pretty self-explanatory. And lastly, what does the word church mean in sacred scripture? My dear friends, what do all of these questions have in common? The need to take a step back and look at the words we use and how these words are used in sacred scripture to then be able to see that everything I have talked about this evening isn't so far-fetched, but moreover, but the truth that, that we profess as Christians and as Catholics. So, always important to just go back to the original text, appreciate the original Hebrew, Greek, right, and, and to some degree in the Latin Vulgate, the Latin as the Latin is that one language that has the, the flexing power to translate the Hebrew, and to some degree the Aramaic and the Greek. All very important. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift to be able to reflect into the richness of your word and the meaning of words, that words are used with, with intention, and that there is this foreordained purpose to reveal something that belongs to truth as we use words. And we just pray for the grace to see things for what they are as opposed to what they are not. And certainly, we ask for the grace that we might be stewards of that all-important virtue of humility, that we might be humble before the Word of God. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.